You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, over the last four decades or so of dealing with union issues from both sides of the table, so to speak, I've found over the years that the vast majority of workers in the workplace, and this is across the country, don't know what their rights are. And that includes, by the way, unionized workers and union members. And while unions will share some rights with employees, they're often loath to share the entirety of their rights whether those workers are being unionized or whether they're already dues-paying union members. And in fact, some of the more interesting cases that we find in the public record are cases of union members' rights that are being abused by the very unions that represent them. Now, in the wake of Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, last week signing the repeal of the state's right-to-work law, and despite the fact that, according to polls, a majority of Michiganders supported the right-to-work law, many people, not just in Michigan but across the nation, don't realize that workers in states without right-to-work laws have rights and options other than paying union dues or being fired. So my guest today is an attorney whose work has helped shape American labor law for workers over the last 40 years across the nation. And his name is Glenn Taubman, and he's a veteran attorney with the National Right to Work Foundation, a group that many people have heard of but don't really know what they do. Now, I will say that for decades, I've seen Glenn's name on charges at the NLRB, wherein he's been the representative of employees in hundreds of cases, but I've never actually had the opportunity to speak with him. So I've been excited about this interview since we scheduled it earlier this month. So here's Glenn Taubman. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Glenn Taubman, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on Labor Relations Radio. Welcome. Thank you. So I thought it would be good for the listeners to kind of go into what the National Right to Work Foundation is all about and a little bit about your background. And I I wanted to reference, I think you're probably one of the most common names on National Labor Relations Board filings that I've seen over the last 30 years. (laughs) Your name is always on the paperwork. Well, thank you. I guess that's a testament to the fact that I actually celebrated my 40th anniversary at the National Right to Work this year. So uh, I will say that if you're around for long enough, your name gets known. Yep. Yep. So um, for the listeners, and particularly the HR folks that may be listening, what is it that the National Right to Work Foundation does? Okay, great question. So, uh, Good day, everyone, to all the viewers out there. So the National Right to Work Foundation is a 501c3 charitable organization. And all we do is provide free legal aid to individual employees only. We don't represent companies. We don't represent foundations. We don't represent employers. We only represent individual employees. And we only represent individual employees who are having some difficulty with what we broadly characterize as compulsory unionism. In other words, they're being forced to join against their will. They're being forced to pay dues against their will. They're being harassed. They're being fined. Um, they're being denied their rights as individuals and as workers. And so these are the cases that we represent employees. The foundation has been in existence since 1968. We have close to 20 attorneys working full-time now, the largest staff we've ever had. Um, And I would urge everyone, if you don't know it, to go to our website, which is nrtw.org. 
dot org org like national right to work nrtw dot org and the main thing to go look for is uh, up at the top we have a section about your legal rights or your legal rights something like that and we've tried to make our website very employee friendly very user friendly so people can find out what their rights are whether it's rights to not pay for union politics or rights to decertify a union or rights to do a deauthorization authorization. Uh, uh, we've tried to make our website very user-friendly for employees. So that's uh, a nutshell of the national right to work. We don't do political. Uh, we don't do lobbying. There is a sister organization, the National Right to Work Committee, that does those sorts of things. But we here at the foundation only provide free legal aid to individual employees. And to the extent you have employees who have these issues, we hope that they find us. That's a, that's a pretty good summary. Let me ask a quick question. And the, so the question is pertinent to folks who are not necessarily under the National Labor Relations Act, but you also represent employees under the Railway Labor Act, right? Yes. In fact, we represent employees under every labor act you can imagine. So, yes, we represent employees of airlines and railroads and so on under the Railway Labor Act. We represent public employees who may be subject to a state labor relations scheme, whether it's California or uh, New York. Uh, Many uh, unionized states have some kind of uh, unionization scheme for their public workers. We're also seeing now that because agricultural workers are excluded from the National Labor Relations Act, we're seeing states now create uh, agricultural labor relations laws. I mean, California has had that for a long time, but other states now are jumping on the bandwagon to try to help unions get into power in those industries. So the the the, the long answer to your short question is, yes, we represent employees under any labor statute that is out there. So, Glenn, let me ask you, um, and I, one of the one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the program was um, Michigan just repealed the right to work law that had been around for about ten years. And are you starting to get calls from people in Michigan now? Yes, we're already getting flooded by it. And I will also refer people to our website because we have some special legal notices up right now uh, to explain to uh, workers in Michigan what their rights are and what's going to happen because uh, it really is going to depend from workplace to workplace as to what is going to happen. But we want people to know what their rights are so they'll be ready when some union boss comes up and taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, if you don't start paying dues, we're going to get you fired. So people need to be aware and be ready for it. And, and, and the rollout is going to depend on what happens in each individual workplace. We can get into that more if you think that's appropriate. Peter. Well, I, I think it would be because um, now I'm a former union rep from a right to work state. And a lot of folks don't understand that it, even in right to work states where there is a collective bargaining agreement, oftentimes they'll have a little hidden clause in the back that says if state or federal law changes, then, you know, all non-members have to become members of the union or agency fee payers. Right. And right. so those those could be kicking in as we speak, given uh, the repeal last week. Right. Well, not quite only because of a quirk of Michigan law, as I understand it, that laws don't go into effect until 90 days after the legislative session ends. So I'm not sure when the current legislative session is going to end. It may have already, or it may have just a a few more weeks or days. I'm, I'm not sure of when the session ends in Michigan. But when it does end, 
then there will be 90 days before the repeal of the right to work law goes into effect. So it's coming. Uh, you know, there is a little bit of a grace period, if you will. But, but as you alluded, Peter, it's really going to depend on what's happening in your workplace. Like, for example, I'm sure there's collective bargaining agreements out there that say, yes, we're in a right to work state and nobody can be forced to join. But as soon as that law is repealed, then automatically we're in a forced shop situation, okay? And and just to clarify, nobody in the United States can actually be forced to be a member of a union, and nobody can be forced to pay full dues to a union. Even in a forced dues state, which Michigan is about to become, the most you can be required to do is to pay the what this the what what's called the financial core fee or the reduced agency fee or the Beck fee. Uh, unions oftentimes don't want to tell people that there are any options, but in fact there are options. So, in some work locations in Michigan, it could be automatic that. And when the 90 days is up, that forced dues is going to kick in in those workplaces. In others, the union may go to the company and say, hey, we want to reopen the contract immediately and turn this into a forced dues workplace. Companies may agree or they may not agree. A company is presumably within its rights to say we're not reopening the contract till the end of the term. And that could be three years from now. So in a, in a workplace like that, it may be several years before there's a rollout of um, forced dues. So it really is going to depend on each individual workplace. Right. I just happened to look up and I think this is accurate. It says um, Michigan's legislative session ends December 31st, 23. So it's possible. And, oh. and that's just one website. So I'm I'm going to defer to people doing their own research, but it's possible that they may not have to pay if there's an automatic kick in until next year. That's possible. Right. I, I just don't know. I'm sorry. I should know. Yeah, no, that's okay. I, I, I just, I got curious as soon as you said that the 90 days, okay, when does it end? Right. So, but, um, so if you're in a workplace, uh, in a non-right to work state and you're required to pay union fees, and I guess you just touched on a, a little caveat that a lot of people don't quite get that it's a negotiable union security is a negotiable clause in a contract. So some companies may say, no, we're not going to agree to that. But if you're in a, if you're at an employer that you're required to pay either union dues or fees as a condition of employment, there are other options still out there, right? Yes, there's quite a number of options. And before I, we even start discussing the options, I, I want to point this out. Many times these contracts will use extremely misleading language. They will say something like, all employees are required to join the union as a condition of employment. Right. And that's actually very misleading because no employee is required to join the union as a condition of employment. No one is required to sign a union card, to pledge allegiance to the union, to agree to abide by the Constitution. This is U.S. Supreme Court law in cases like General Motors, Pattern Makers, and Beck. Nobody is actually required to be a formal card-carrying member, no matter what the contract says. The most you can be required to do is be a non-member paying reduced financial core fees. But unions don't want people to know these rights generally. And unfortunately, many companies agree to uh, uh, clauses in their contracts that are really grossly misleading. And so many people, even, even HR professionals, oftentimes don't know this. They'll say, well, the contract says everyone has to be a member. I mean, we have plenty of cases where employees show up to work and they're handed the membership card and, and told, you have to sign this or you're fired. 
And that is blatantly illegal. And then we end up in litigation. And then the company says, oh, we, wow, we made a mistake. I mean, and it, we shouldn't have told you, you have to be a member. I mean, we have currently case, pending cases like that right now. So um, that's the first point I want to get across is that nobody is actually required to be a member and pay full dues. Now, I think, Peter, you were asking about different options that people have in a forced due state or when it all kicks in in Michigan well, months down the road. But go be, ahead. Before you go there, because you just opened up a train of thought for me that um, with the current National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, who is now going after employers who don't correctly explain the relationship change um, is the case called precast. They're wanting to reverse precast and basically file or um, determine that employers are committing unfair labor practices. If they don't give the section nine, nine, a nuance of once you become unionized, the company can no longer deal with you directly. However, you still have the right to present your own grievances. That's the splitting of the hairs that, that GC Abruzzo is wanting to do. But her statement that if you don't explain that, you're misleading employees and therefore it's an unfair labor practice, would that not also apply to those clauses in contracts that say all, mem- all employees have to join a union as a condition of employment or become members in good standing as a condition of employment? The, mis- the misinterpretation or the misleading of employees, is that not an unfair labor practice? Well... Under her logic. (laughs) Well, it certainly should be if the labor law was being administered neutrally and fairly. But look, we know it's not. I mean, especially under this administration where the president runs around the country telling everyone he's the most pro-union president in American history, which I have no doubt since he's appointed only union lawyers to the top NLRB positions. But to answer your question, it should be an unfair labor practice, and and actually it is. Now, whether Jennifer Abruzzo and her team enforces this is another question, but there's a lot of precedent out there, and this is why we still file cases when this happens. There's a lot of precedent that says it is illegal and misleading to tell people they must be union members and they must sign a card and they must sign a check off or they'll be walked off the property, it is illegal to tell people that and to demand it. And uh, yet it, it continues because the unions, they purposely put into collective bargaining agreements misleading clauses, and then they watch it get uh, rolled out in that way. Uh, and it takes an employee with a little bit of gumption to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, I don't think I have to sign this card. I don't think I have to uh, authorize the deduction of dues from my salary. So, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, uh, an unlevel playing field with the current administration as to what gets enforced against employers and what gets enforced against unions. Well, you're raising a bunch of points that I'm starting to connect some dots and one of those, so in essence, every CBA out there, collective bargaining agreement, that's got a union security clause that states in the language that the employee has to become a member in good standing or join the union, et cetera, under threat of termination. Doesn't that, doesn't the existence of the language itself um, violate the employee's section seven rights? Okay, so now I, I thought you were going to go there, and I was trying to avoid and, getting too technical with the listeners. But and there's another dot to connect there. There's there's a lot of dots. <laughs> this is like a big spider web. Of I dots. know. I love these. But, but there's a U.S. Supreme Court case from I think the '90s called Marquez versus Screen Actors Guild, and the U.S. Supreme Court said this. The National Labor Relations Act, the law that Congress passed, says you can be required to be a member. So 
we're not going to fault unions for putting clauses in that parallel the language of the National Labor Relations Act, even though we have held in other cases like Beck and Pattern Makers and General Motors that that language cannot literally be enforced. So think about that for a while. Unions can legally put language in contracts that says membership is required, even though the Supreme Court held in another line of cases that membership cannot be required. So I think everyone agrees that it's misleading, but through this technicality, the Supreme Court upheld their ability to continue to use that misleading language. And that's probably part of why here we are 20 years later and we're still having cases like this because once and for all, the Supreme Court never said, no, we're not going to allow you to use that language because it is per se misleading. So I hope I'm not confusing your listeners. No, you're, well, you might be with the listeners. Yeah, I, I I'm understanding it, but I'm I'm still pushing back a little bit because then you have another case which was the went to the third circuit, I believe, with the Federalist, where a third party filed a charge against uh Ben Dominic at the Federalist, right? Because of a tweet he did. And the court, at least in the Third Circuit, reaffirmed that anybody could file a charge. And now you've got a different Supreme Court than you did back in the nineties. So is it is it possible that some entity out there um, were to, to get hold of a bunch of CBAs and file on behalf of the workers covered under those CBAs that state that you've got, and based on their Section 7 rights, right, um, that the contract itself is violation, violation of their Section 7 rights, just as a, an employer handbook could be. Right. Um, I, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to argue against <laughs> what you're saying because I, I actually agree. I'm extraordinarily sympathetic to everything you just said. There's no question that it's misleading. There's no question in my mind that it's a violation of Section 7 rights to put in such a misleading clause. Um uh, unfortunately, we're dealing with this Marquez precedent, um, but you, you, you're right that anybody could file a charge. The question, though, is where is the charge going to go? And I suspect, especially with the current NLRB, they're going to say, well, we're bound by Marquez and you're stuck with this. And as long as the union doesn't enforce it and get you fired, there's nothing wrong with them using this misleading language in the contract itself. Right. It's it's just against what the current direction of the NLRB is with regard to misleading information for employees. Agree a hundred percent. And and let me tell you, um, the prior general counsel under the prior administration, whose name was Peter Robb, Peter Robb was four square with us on this point and was working towards making unions provide better disclosure, more disclosure, timely disclosure of people's rights. And do you know what happened to Peter Robb at uh, 5 p.m. when on the day that President Biden was sworn in? Peter Robb was fired by the Biden administration, the first general counsel in the history of the National Labor Relations Board, which is about 80 years old. He was the first general counsel to be fired by a president. So that tells you a little bit about, you know, how they are administering the National Labor Relations Act. The one general counsel who was actually leaning on unions to provide proper and adequate disclosure was fired on day one of the Biden administration. Right. All right. Sorry to take you down yeah. that that rabbit hole, but it, okay. it's it's a fascinating concept given the direction they're going, trying to impose one set of rules on employers and not not the unions. Right. All in the under the auspices of protecting employees' Section Seven rights. 
Right, that's correct. But but I think before we went down that interesting rabbit hole, you were asking about employees' options in a state like Michigan now that forced dues are going to be rolled in over time, right? Right, or any existing, you know, already non-right-to-work states. Right. The- so, so let me give a few examples of employees' rights and how they can respond and how they can fight back. And the first one that comes to mind is one I've already alluded to called Beck Rights. So Beck was a Supreme Court case from the 1980s that we litigated here. And the issue in Beck was, okay, if you're forced to pay dues to a union for its collective bargaining activities, are you also forced to pay for its political activities? Because as we know, unions in this country are very much political animals. And thankfully, the Supreme Court in Beck ruled, no, you don't have to pay for a union's political activities. The whole point of reimbursing a union under the National Labor Relations Act was to reimburse them for their collective bargaining and contract administration function and not to uh, force you to pay when they go off and want to uh, elect uh, Ocasio-Ortez. I'm sorry, I'm... Missing her name, AOC. AOC, right. And they want you to support AOC. The Supreme Court says, thankfully, you don't have to fund that and you don't have to fund Bernie's campaign and every other political activity that unions want to do. So the first thing that people should know in a non-right-to-work state is they have Beck rights. And all you have to do to invoke Beck rights is say to the union, I object to funding your political activity. And that triggers that the union has to give you financial breakdowns and information about a reduced fee. And I can tell the listeners that I've seen uh, unions fess up to that more than 50% of their expenditures is on political activity or what we call non-chargeable activity. I've seen, for example, SEIU disclosure from California where close to 60% of their money is admitted to be for political purposes. So if you become a Beck objector under one of these collective bargaining agreements, you may only be paying 40% of the dues. So um, um, that's one option that people have is to invoke their Beck rights. And even other unions, like uh, I think some of the disclosure I've seen from like the UAW, they'll usually admit to 20, 25% of their uh, dues goes for pure politics. And that's really by their own admission. I mean, it may be a lot more than that, but you still get a, let's say, a 25% reduction in dues uh, if you invoke your Beck rights, which is not insubstantial. A lot of workplaces, dues are over a thousand bucks a year these days. Um, So that's one option, Beck rights. Uh, And all of this is on our website, If you want to go look, you can find it. Again, look at the uh, About Your Legal Rights sections, and there's a lot of information about that on our website. So, Glenn, not to to cut you off totally on this, because I want to stay on it for just a second. What happens a lot of times is unions will, uh, they'll just, they'll blur the lines for employees. They'll tell people, well, you're not actually paying for politics. And what they're referring to is PAC funds or COPE, things that are voluntary, But what a lot of folks don't realize is that there's political activity in lobbying and whether it's, you know, quote unquote, education, that sort of stuff that that unions will use union dues for. And if I recall, there's a and this is going back years ago, there's a Wall Street Journal analysis done on the actual amount of monies that were used for politics versus what was reported. And it was like four times more that was used than what was reported. In other words, they differentiated between the COPE or the, the PAC funds and then laid out all the other stuff. It was like $4 billion that election year. Right. Versus- right. 
Right, right, right. You, you're raising a fantastic point. And as I said, you know, the tip of the iceberg is what unions admit to. Now, we at the National Right to Work have been doing litigation for decades to chip away at this. You know, when I started here 40 years ago and cases like Beck and Hudson and so on, not to throw out all the case names, but these are all Supreme Court cases that we litigated. The, the, the first uh, reductions was, I remember the Teamsters literally would give a two cent reduction and they would send a check to somebody for two cents, which right. is how they sort of tried to intimidate these people and tell them how little their claims were worth. But now, because we have continued to litigate over the decades and challenge their breakdowns and challenge the, the allocation between chargeable and non-chargeable, as I say, some unions, like the one SEIU in California, was down to 60% political, 40% chargeable. Many other unions, I see 20 25% uh, political, and that's by their own admission. And and to your point, Peter, about other activities like get out the vote drives and education and so on, all of that is political and should not right. be charged. And uh, I'm happy to say that I won a case a few years ago in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit called United Nurses and Professionals versus NLRB, where the court ruled that union organizing is more in the realm of political than it is for collective bargaining. In other words, I'm already organized, so why should I pay for the union to go organize another workplace? So we've gotten this entire class of union activity organizing to be pushed over into the non-chargeable column. That's interesting, and especially if you have um, like what's currently going on out there and unions spending a ton of money on whether it's the Fight for 15 movement, because I think that's been you know over $100 million with the SEIU over the years, as well as you know the TikTok videos that they produce and all that other stuff. That's interesting. I, it's, uh, right. oh, I don't oh, think that's out there at all. All of that is basically classified, it should be classified as non-chargeable, more akin to politics than to actual representation. Because again, remember, the rationale of the Supreme Court was, well, gee, you have to pay for what the union does to represent you, right? Or represent your bargaining unit. But doing politics and doing organizing at other companies is not representing you. So it should all be in the non-chargeable column. Interesting. Uh, so. The, so the other thing, um, which is kind of relevant to this whole discussion, is over the years, and I don't know what the current numbers are, but roughly 40% of dues-paying members don't support the political causes that their unions do, right? So it's, I want to go into political party politics, but if you've got, you know, a union that leans towards the Democrat party policies, 40% of the membership may support Republican policies. Right. And, and, you know, this is a very interesting question because this is, um, you know, I, I would say in some ways it's just that people aren't aware of their rights or they might be afraid to exercise their rights. And certainly the unions have no interest in explaining these rights to people, right? The unions would right. rather sort of put out the word, well, this is a union shop and you have to be a member and you have to pay dues, but they don't want to tell their own membership, oh, by the way, you really don't have to be a member. And if you're a Republican and we're supporting Bernie Sanders, you can opt out of the politics and you can get a 40% reduction in your dues. They have no pecuniary reason to want to tell people that. So uh, there's just a lot of people out there that don't know these rights. And, um, you know, that's why we're here. And that's why we have a website. We try to educate people. Um, not to shift, but 
if you want to continue on in the in the question of what can people do to fight back and to exercise their rights, uh, I would say after Beck rights, the right to opt out of paying for the politics and the non-representational, the next thing that people can consider is what's called a deauthorization petition. And you can again find this on our website. A D under the nat. This is only under the National Labor Relations Act. It's not under almost any other labor statute. But there's something in the National Labor Relations Act that gives employees the right to vote the forced dues clause out of their contract. This is very interesting. It's not the easiest thing to utilize, but we help people with this. So you can go and get a petition. And if you get over 30% of your workplace to sign this petition, you can file with the National Labor Relations Act for a deauthorization. And the union remains in place. The collective bargaining remains in place. Nothing changes, but the one thing that's voted on in this deauthorization election is the right to, to take the force dues clause out of the contract. It literally takes it out of the contract and creates a right to work, if you will, in your own workplace. Um, I'm not going to uh, say that it's easy to do this. Uh, you, the law requires that you have to have a majority of all eligible voters to vote to strip the contract of this power. But if you have a majority, if you have uh, enough people in your workplace who are tired of being forced to pay union dues, you can vote that clause out of the contract. So let me ask you a couple technical questions with that. Um, so under the National Labor Relations Board policies, there are contract bars, there's election bars. Are there any types of bars to doing that? For example, if we just got a contract, there's 100 employees, um, we don't like the contract, we don't like the union, but we're in a non-right-to-work state with the union security clause, is there a bar that says we can't have a UD petition or a, a deauthorization election within a certain time frame? No, that's that's one of the beauties, uh, one of the few beauties of deauthorization petitions, which the NLRB refers to as UD petitions, right. as you said. So for the audience out there, that's just a kind of a nickname for deauthorization. But there are no bars, there are no time limits. As long as there is in effect a contract with a forced dues provision the employees can move to deauthorize it at any time, whether it's day one of the contract or the last month of the contract. They can move to deauthorize without bars, without time limits, and so on. Again, I'm not going to say it's easy because you must have a majority of those eligible to win a deauthorization. So just to give you a quick example so people understand what I'm saying, if there are 100 employees in a workplace eligible to vote and I petition for a deauthorization, I must get 51 employees to affirmatively vote to get rid of the forced dues clause because if I can't muster a majority of those eligible, then I will lose. So under this hypothetical, if there were 100 employees and 45 voted to get rid of the forced dues and only 20 voted to keep it, I would still lose because the 45 wasn't enough to get me over the 50% threshold. So and this is a bit different than other types of NLRB elections, where yes. it's, it's, you know, 50% plus one of the eligible members who actually show up to vote. Correct. And, this and, is the total bargaining unit. 
Yes, it's different. So, so that makes it a challenge sometimes because, in effect, if you don't show up to vote because you're on vacation or whatever, if you don't show up to vote, in effect, you're voting to keep the forced dues in place because the proponent of the right. deauthorization must muster more than 50% in order to win. But nevertheless, I'm not going to say it's easy, but we've had many successful deauthorization cases. And and I, I want to now lead into decertification because this ties into something you said, Peter, and that is that in uh, you you reference something called like blocks and bars and NLRB policies that prevent elections. Those don't really apply in deauthorizations, but where they do apply is in decertification. So let's suppose I have a union, they negotiate a lousy contract, and it's a three-year contract, and now everybody hates the union. And not only do they hate the union, it has a forced dues clause in it, which says for the next three years, we have to pay dues. Okay, if we try to decertify immediately, it will be dismissed by the National Labor Relations Board because they have created a thing, a doctrine called the contract bar, which says that you cannot have an election for up to three years or the life of the contract. So that's just one example of NLRB policies that smother employee free choice. And there's many, many others. We could list the bars and blocks, the contract bar, the successor bar, the settlement bar, the election bar, the certification bar. And I will note that only one of these bars was placed in the statute by Congress, and that is the election bar that says no more than one election shall be held in any workplace within a year. Okay, so Congress created one bar to an election, but the National Labor Relations Board over the decades, as many bureaucrats, you know, have to think of things to do to keep themselves busy, has created a whole series of bars and blocks that prevent decertification petitions. But having said that again, and so I'm not going to say that any of this is easy, but employees that don't want their union can, uh, if they do it right, and they can go to our website, we have it laid out what some of the rules are, they can call and speak to one of our attorneys, and somebody will work with them and explain to them what the rules are, and we will uh, do our best to secure them at the appropriate time a D. Uh, certification so that they can have a vote. And and I, I want to point out, you talk about statistics, there is a, a statistic out there that says that something like 90% of all workers have never voted for the union that represents yep. them. Yeah, And that's because under the National Labor Relations Act, once a union is certified and gets in power, it's the closest thing to perpetual life on earth, as you can imagine, because there's no automatic recertifications. It's not like your congressman or your senator that every two years or every six years they have to stand for reelection automatically. When a union gets certified, they are certified permanently and perpetually unless and until an employee stands up, organizes a decertification, files it at the right time, and gets through all of these various blocks and bars. So none of these things come easy, but they can come. They frequently come. We represent quite a number of employees all over the country. I, I think the last time I looked at a statistic on this, take the month of December 2022, 
attorneys from the National Right to Work were representing 50% of the employees who filed decertification petitions in the month of December 2022. So we are very active in this space, trying to educate people as to their rights. And the fact of the matter is, unions, once they get in, they're permanently in until someone goes through this rather arduous course to get them out. So, Glenn, let me, um, for the listeners, kind of break down some of these blocks and and bars. The um, I, I always say, try to explain this to employees, and I have a diagram that, that is more visual. But if you have a union election on, say, January 1st, and the election is certified, the union is in for at least a year, which is the election bar. And then if at 11 months into the contract negotiations, the union accepts a contract that's a three-year contract, the only time that the employees would be able to, that's where your contract bar kicks in, the only time that the employees would be able to legally try to decertify the the union is a 30-day window that opens up 90 days, excepting for healthcare, 90 days before the contract expires, closes again 60 days before the contract expires, and during that two-month period before the contract expires, the union can put them into another contract, right? Uh, or if the contract expires, then, but if they, if they miss that window, they're going to have to wait until the contract expires. But technically, the union could put them into another contract before then. Well, and you, I, you get, you're getting into a lot of technicalities, but I, I, I would just say, for a general audience that's listening in, the bottom line is this. A union that comes in, that gets certified, they could very easily be in for four years or very close to four years without facing a decertification. Because as Peter said, they're in for the first year because that's the election bar. Then, let's say at the very end of the first year, they sign a three-year contract. Now you add on the contract bar. So the employees could not decertify till very close to the end of that three-year contract. So all in all, the union has a four-year incumbency. Everyone in the unit could hate the union, wish they never came in, doesn't want to pay them a dime in dues, but the National Labor Relations Board says you're stuck for as much as four years. Now you get to the point that Peter was mentioning about these window periods. This is another invention of bureaucrats at the National Labor Relations Board. Because there's nothing in the statute, zero, that talks about window periods. But they've created shifting window periods, 60 to 90 days prior to the expiration of the contract in most industries, 90 to 120 days in the healthcare industry, and so on. And if you miss your window by even one day, your uh, people at the National Labor Relations Board say, eh, sorry, try again, maybe in three more years or, you know, something like that. So uh, the law is very unforgiving to employees, many of whom don't have lawyers. You know, the lucky ones find us and we can help them generally. But there's a lot of employees out there who I see who flail away and get chewed up by these doctrines, these blocks, these bars, and so on. And the National Labor Relations Board is not going to come to their rescue. These are very unforgiving doctrines when it comes to employee rights. But then again, on the other side of the coin, the union can file an organizing petition any day of the week. There's no blocks on organizing petitions. There's no bars against organizing petitions, although the only one is the election bar, that if if they had an election uh, in 2022, they have to wait till 2023 in order to file. But right. generally speaking, it's easy to get into a union. It's very difficult to get out. 
Right. And that's, you know, walking employees through that because employees who are going through union organizing drives, the union organizers will often say, well, if you don't like us, you can just vote us back out. Easier said than done. And so I wanted to ask you this question because there's a couple different ways to decertify a union. One is which, well, there's, I guess, three maybe. Um, One is the decertification election in which you'd have to have 30% plus to sign a decertification petition basically to kick the union out the other is a withdrawal of recognition which is if if recollection serves more than 50 percent of the employees in the bargaining unit sign a petition if you will to both the union and the employer telling the employer to withdraw recognition and and that that you don't have to have an election to do that's just the petition itself right right so so you're you're right on all of these scores. The way it works with the decertification petition is you need 30% to sign your petition. Then you file for an election. If you manage to get the election, whoever gets a majority wins. With a withdrawal of recognition, that means the employees are saying to their employer affirmatively, more than a majority do not want the union. And the employer can, again, though, the employer is subject to the time limits. An employer can't withdraw recognition in the middle of a three-year contract because the contract bar rules still apply. But let's say the employees get towards the end of their three-year contract. If more than 50% sign a petition saying we do not want this union to represent us any longer, and they present that to the employer, the employer can, I say can because they're not required to, they can withdraw recognition of the union. They could send the union packing and say, we've reached the end of the contract. Uh, We have objective proof that a majority no longer support you, so we don't recognize you anymore. Goodbye. They can do that, but now there's some problems. The first problem is that Jennifer Abruzzo, the head of the National Labor Relations uh, General Counsel's office, is on the warpath to prevent withdrawals of recognition. See, uh, this is part of the hypocrisy. The union can get in on a voluntary recognition based on signature cards, but she's trying to prevent employees from ousting a union based on a majority of these signature cards. So that's one of the hurdles. The other hurdle, frankly, is that she is browbeating employers to not withdraw recognition, and she's threatening them with all kinds of legal action if they do withdraw recognition. In fact, uh, a case that I was involved in called Johnson Controls, which upheld withdrawals of recognition Uh, This was back in, I want to say, about 2017, 2018, maybe. That's on her hit list to see that that case is overruled. She said that publicly. So, you know, they're they're trying to make uh, this avenue much more difficult, if not impossible, for employees to get rid of a union. Because, after all, under this uh, uh, crowd that's running the National Labor Relations Board, it's all about getting unions in power and all about stopping from having them taken out of power. Which which goes to they're not not really about employee choice, except in rhetoric. Right. And, and I'm not even sure they're about employee choice in terms of rhetoric. But yes, I mean, there's certainly a lot of rhetoric and hypocrisy going here. I mean, the, the whole idea that you can bring a union in based on a card check and voluntary recognition, which is, by the way, what the PRO Act is all about. For those of you who have heard of the PRO Act, that's Democrat legislation pending in Congress that would essentially do away with secret ballot elections and mandate that employers have to 
recognize unions anytime the union shows up with a card majority. That's what they want to bring a union in. And at the same time, they're saying, oh, oh, heaven forbid that you would ever oust the union based on the same card majority. We would never allow that. So that's just part of the hypocrisy of the whole thing. So, Glenn, when, when we're talking about decertifications, um, and I kind of I wanted to walk through the process a little bit because I used the reference of putting employees into a contract and Oftentimes, employees hear from the unions, well, you get to vote on a contract or you get to vote to reject it. But that's not a legal right, is it? Right. That is correct. And and you had a case recently, I think, out near Pittsburgh that was one in which the, uh, was it the United Steelworkers actually, (laughs) actually defended their action saying the employees don't have a right to do that? Right. So... You know, they tell employees, we are the most democratic organizations. You you bring us in and you can vote us out anytime you want. You bring us in and you, the union is you. You'll vote on all contracts and things like that. Except what they don't mention is that there is nothing zero in the National Labor Relations Act that mandates that employees have to vote in contract ratifications. To the contrary, it is totally up to the union whether it is going to allow employees to vote in a contract ratification or not. And the case that Peter references, which was a steelworkers case with Latrobe Specialty Metals outside of Pittsburgh, The employees in that case twice voted down the contract, and then a a decertification petition was circulating, and the union officials said, wow, we need a contract to seal our incumbency because without a contract, we're going to get voted out. So they secretly ratified, I use the scare quotes, they claim to have ratified the contract, as even though the employees twice voted against the contract. And when we got into litigation over this, they actually defended by saying, employees have no right to vote. We only do that as a courtesy to them. And if we do that and we give them the courtesy, we're not bound by the results of the election. So we signed this contract over the objections of these employees to, quote, protect the integrity of the union, close quotes. So the idea, just to sum up, that unions are the most democratic institutions and that you'll have a right to vote on your own contract it is 100% false. And anybody who is uh, doubting what I'm saying can go and read the transcripts and the briefs that were filed by the steelworkers' lawyers in that case. And they literally say, no one has a right to vote on contract ratifications. We allow it as a courtesy, and we're not bound by it any way. And P.S., we often sign contracts that employees have voted down. So, you know, this is part of the sort of the dark underbelly of how unions operate in America. And, of course, they don't want people to know this. Well, you, you know, when I teach classes on, on labor relations and I get into the, the um, concept of decertification, I always use it as I'm, I'm talking to employees or management you know, if I put you into a contract or if you get put into a contract and then I walk them through the contract bar, election bar, et cetera, the, I always stop after that and I say, you know, now you didn't catch me. How do you get put into a contract? You didn't stop me and ask me to explain that. And the fact of the matter is unions can put people into contracts that they totally disagree with. Right. Because workers don't have a legal right to vote on contracts. That's correct. And, you know, I I tell people frequently, uh, and, and it's a little dramatic, but I think it's true. If you have elected a union, you have elected a dictator in your workplace because they can do all kinds of things to your workplace that you may oppose greatly 
and you have no say in it whatsoever. Yep. So, um, yeah, the, I, I need to actually go back and read the transcripts of that because it, it's, I saw the case and I, I thought it was interesting. Um, and I guess my question for you with regard to Latrobe, did you get involved after they, they had voted down the contract twice? Yeah, I think, I think it was right around that time that the employees came to us and, and, um, what happened was they filed for decertification and the union defended by saying, Hey, you can't proceed with this decertification because we have a contract. So the contract bar applies. And it was around that time. I I don't remember the exact sequence of when we got involved, but the employees called us up, the decertification petitioner called us up and said, hey, what gives here? We voted down this contract, and now they're saying that we have no right to a decertification election because they ratified the contract. That's when we got involved. And um, just to conclude this story and to let your listeners know what happened, we litigated the National Labor Relations Board held that there was no ratified contract and therefore there was no contract bar. They allowed the decertification election to go forward and not surprisingly, the steelworkers lost the election and they were voted out and they are officially gone. So, Yeah, the, and... A couple other interesting points is that, A, if you didn't have an enterprising employee trying to find answers to their problem and find you guys, like, they would have probably been stuck. And the second part of that is if you guys didn't exist, the employees' rights would have been totally screwed. Absolutely correct. I mean, I I just think it's fantastic that people find us. We have a great presence on the Internet. Uh, We're out there. And and it's very important that people know about us and find us. And there's no question about it that if we didn't exist, all of these rights that we protect, they would just be gone and people would have no way of getting out. You know, I have to laugh. I, I do have to laugh. I'll tell you this. I watched uh, the hearing today, the Senate hearing with Bernie and uh, Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, And Bernie's wrap-up was, this is all about powerful, moneyed people who are crushing workers. And I thought, well, what about the workers in Latrobe Specialty Steel? They didn't have lawyers. They didn't have money. They were downtrodden. They were being crushed by a union that had plenty of lawyers and plenty of money. But, of course, Bernie doesn't want to talk about that aspect of it because they're not really about employee-free choice. They're about getting unions in power and keeping them in power because, after all, that's where the campaign contributions come from. Yeah, it's I, I listened to 90% of the hearing this morning, and it was, you know, Bernie at the front end castigating Howard Schultz and Starbucks and... Patty Murray was also in there, and and then um, I, I got to say Howard Schultz did pretty well considering the hostile environment. Right, right. But, yep. Well, Glenn, we've been on for close to an hour, and I could spend all day talking to you about this, but I know you've got cases stacking up. <laughs> but I, I, it is such an honor and privilege to talk to you because I've seen your name on all these you know, cases over the years and, and finally been able to connect with you. I had Mark mix on, I think it was late last year, but it was, uh, it's always, it's always fun to talk to people at the national right to work foundation. Well, thank you, Peter. I really appreciate your having me on. I love talking about these issues. I'm passionate about it. We're passionate here. And, um, you know, we just feel that employees, need assistance and need help. And this is what we do. And uh, really appreciate your letting us put our point of view and our message out there. And I'll be happy to return anytime. I love to talk about all of this. And uh, anytime you want to have us back, 
Well, let me know and thank you for the opportunity. I would I would love that because there's so much that's changing almost daily these days and it's always good to get a different opinion and and you know I I have these wild ideas that I think should make sense so I like to bounce them off of people who know. <laughs> so, <Okay>. anytime. <laughs> thank you sir, appreciate it. Great, thanks. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Glenn Taubman with the National Right to Work Foundation. And I don't know about you, but I find conversations that get into some of the wonky stuff somewhat fun. And I apologize if I took you down too many wonky rabbit holes. But in any case, I found the conversation to be extremely intriguing. And if you're an employee, I'm going to leave some links under the audio portion of this episode. If you want to get hold of National Right to Work Foundation, it's nrtw.org. But we're also going to leave the... Um, know your rights link under the audio portion of this episode in any case that wraps up another episode of labor relations radio i'm your host peter list if you want to reach out on twitter it's at workplace report that's at workplace rpt leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 thanks for listening and have a great week Black cream, take me to that place. Wash my sins away. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.